Our message is Psalm 119, 73 to 80. Psalm 119, verses 73 to 80. I will have a couple of words of introduction, a reminder. You've heard these things before, but it's necessary at points to remind you of these two truths. The first one, before we get into the passage, has to do with the fact that the word that we study, the word of God, is from God. It is inspired. It's true. It's from the Holy Spirit. These are not the words of men. They're not the words of men. When we come to the Bible, many times we think we're just reading a man-made book and a man-made religion. No, the Bible is not that. All the religions of the world and all the philosophies of the world that are contrary to the Bible, they are false and they are man-made. And in fact, they originate with the devil. But the faith that is found here in the Bible, the gospel of Christ, is from God. Don't doubt it whatsoever. It is the word of God. The words here are the recorded words of the prophets and the apostles of Christ. And the spirit of Christ was in the prophets predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. The Spirit of Christ was in David, even, guiding him to write this psalm and all the psalms that he wrote and the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and the apostles wrote by the Holy Spirit. So keep that in mind. We do approach God's Word. Number two, it is a matter of life and death. When we study the truths of the Bible... We cannot come to them flippantly. We cannot come to them casually. We have to come to them with the right attitude. And it is an attitude of life and death. Heaven and hell. There's either eternal life or eternal death. There is eternal life or there is eternal punishment. There is either heaven and Christ or there is the devil and the lake of fire. This is the way the Bible looks at the word of God. And in fact, if we compromise and twist and turn and mangle the Bible in any way, then we are liable to death. We must come to it knowing that whatever the Bible says, we must believe. He who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. James 2.10 Or Deuteronomy 27.26 Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book of the law. Cursed is the one who does not abide by the words in this book of the law. There is a curse if we don't live according to this word. And the only way to be delivered from that curse is Christ. If Christ has become a curse for us, if he died on the cross for us, and we believe that truly, not pretentiously, but if we truly believe in that, then that curse is lifted from us, it's placed on Christ, and we have eternal life. And then, thirdly, we have to know that if we truly belong to Christ, it shows in our humble desire to obey Christ. Whatever Christ says, it shows in our humble desire to obey Christ. This is what we find with David. These words that we read in Psalm 119, these words are meaningless Uh, incomprehensible, confusing, and even distasteful to the person who does not truly know Christ. He does, does not want to live the way that it is described here. He never even prays the way that it is described here. 
The person who does not belong to Christ does not have a desire to know what it says, to pray this way, and to obey this way. The person who is an unbeliever has not had a changed heart. He does not know God. He does not believe in the gospel. So when, when we read these words, we must understand them as God's words, words of life and death, and words that we must believe, and these are our words of life, our words of understanding, our words of wisdom, to live before God in this world now, and also prepare ourselves for the world to come. 73, verse 73 says, Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad, because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. O may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my, may my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that these words are our words. And we pray that you'll show us how to pray like this, how to desire these things, and to live accordingly. We are weak and feeble, Lord. The flesh does consume us. The flesh does distract us. The devil is very tempting, and the world too. But we pray that we will have victory, that our faith would overcome the world, and we pray that we'll have a prayer like this. We'll desire these kinds of truths in our life. Make us more like this, for it is Christ that we want to conform to, no longer transformed by the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In Christ's name, amen. In verse 73, when David prays, Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. In a nutshell, he addresses the Lord as both his creator and redeemer. We note in the first phrase, Your hands made me and fashioned me. We know this to be the case. He's using the terminology, the phraseology of that which happened in Genesis chapter 2. And in Psalm 139, in Genesis 2, Moses described Adam being fashioned or formed from the ground. And in Psalm 139, even David acknowledges that in his mother's womb, he was formed and fashioned and reshaped according to God's miraculous abilities to make him. Here we see that David, as a redeemed man, as, as a redeemed and holy man of God, he acknowledges God as Redeemer. He, I'm sorry, as creator. He notices and acknowledges that God is creator. And because he is creator, it leads him to muse and to think about God as his redeemer. The person who understands, who is unsaved, who is unregenerate, who does not have salvation in Christ, he can acknowledge that there's a God and there's a creator. And it just ends there. It just ends there. Once he knows God as creator, nothing motivates him to seek God as his redeemer. But not with the person who has a new heart. The person with a new heart says, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. 
He knows, the redeemed man knows, that God is the creator, and if he can create the universe, if he can create the stars, the sun, the moon, if he can create man with his many skills and abilities, such a detailed and meticulous creation of man and all of his organisms, if he can create animals and the plants and the earth to have its cycles, seasonal cycles, if he can do all this and show his mighty power, then he is the same one. If he created the world, he can recreate me. And he can continue to recreate me. He can continue to make me not only a new creation at conversion, but continue to transform and sanctify and grow and renew me day by day. That's why he says, Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. He knows that God is the only place to go to be renewed and to be transformed in his mind, in his understanding. Now I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is what... Paul the Apostle exhorts us to do in Romans 12, and this is what David is asking. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. I need you, I want you, Lord, to show me what the Bible says that I may learn what your commandments are. I want to do what your commandments are. I want to obey you, but I need to understand first. Help me understand, help me learn, and then I obey. This is what a true believer does. Verse 74. A true believer also says, May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. A true believer says that those other people who also fear God like I fear God, may they see me, may we be in our, one another's company and have this gladness or this happiness, this joy, this excitement of being together because I wait for your word. I wait or hope for your word. I hope in... My hope is not in this world. My hope is in the world to come. And that's found in your word. I put my hope in these things, in the gospel of Christ. I do so. And may others who also fear you do so. May they who fear you see me and be glad. And may we hope in your word together. This is similar to verse 79. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. There are other God-fearing people who are God-fearing in the gospel, they see one another and they know God's testimonies, the words of God, they know it, and so they come together and fellowship. This is what we find here. If we truly are redeemed, we truly want fellowship. We truly want fellowship with the people of God. Notice here, he describes them as God-fearers. How did this fear of God come within them? We may ask. The fear of God came within them because of the kindness of God. The fear of God came within them, according to Romans 2.4, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. If God's kindness has not been shown in your life, has not been manifested in your life, has not been uh, invading your personal life, if it has not been there, it will not lead you to repentance. The kindness of God must be 
the precursor. It must be the, the inst- instigator, the, inst- the, the, the initiator for our repentance. And then when we do have repentance, what happens when we repent? Why do we p- repent of sin? What is it that makes us turn away from evil and sinful things? Because the preacher or the messenger of God, through the word of God, has made known to you that there is a consequence to sin. There's a consequence. There is a penalty. There's an eternal punishment for sin. And that should awaken within us this desire to escape and be delivered from the wrath of God to come. The wrath of God is announced, but if you want to avoid it, if you want to divert it, if you want it not to come to you and upon your own head, then you need to know that there is a consequence, a condemnation for unrepentant sin. And this is how the fear of God is aroused within us. We have the kindness of God that makes us aware of this wrath of God to come, and then we repent of sin. And then when we do repent of sin, what do we have as a consequence? It said in Psalm 130, in Psalm 130, it says in verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If God marks them, if He marks them as His target, then He's going to attack that target. Who's going to be able to stand? Nobody. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. There is forgiveness. God does offer, He does present forgiveness of sins. He does say there is a way to escape the wrath of God. There is a way. Turn from sin and there will be forgiveness of sins. And once there is forgiveness of sins, then there's another. Sequential order, what happens? The fear of God remains. Why does God forgive us of sins? He forgives us of sins that we might fear Him. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God forgives us of sins because He first made us aware of the consequences of sins. And then He continues to remind us to fear Him. He causes forgiveness to happen based on repentance so that we can continue to fear God. And when we fear God, we want to be with others who fear God. Not with others who take God's name in vain. Not with others who pretend to be Christians. Not with others who like to keep one foot in the church and another foot in the world. Or one foot on the earth and the other foot in hell. No. They want to be with those who fear God because they know it's good for them. They know it will help them. They know that iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. They know that, that uh, those who walk with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. They know that if one is a companion of fools, a friend of fools, then there, there's going to be harm, danger, destruction that awaits. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15:33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company. Don't be deceived. Don't listen to others' deception. And then don't deceive yourself. Don't believe lies. Do you love yourself enough to believe the truth? Or do you hate yourself and believe lies? Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. 
I speak this to your shame. He's telling these Corinthians, many of them are believers, but many of them are not. And he's telling them, become sober-minded as you ought. Stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. See, we ought to fear God, and we ought to be around those who want to fear God and have no compromise with the world. This is what David understands, what he loves to do, to be around God fears. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now he speaks of the justice of God. We note here, he spoke of him as creator, then redeemer, and then as a redeemed man, he knows there must be fellowship. And then once you have fellowship, you will have affliction. This is the justice of God. But when he has affliction... He does not blame God. He does not accuse God. He does not curse God. He does not take God's name in vain. He does not say anything or do anything that's profane against the name of God. He says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. Whatever judgments, whatever sentences, whatever declarations, as the judge of heaven, God has in the Holy Bible, they are righteous. Whatever God says about matters of righteousness and wickedness, that everything that's true and false, whatever the Bible says, He says it's righteous. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. Let God be found true and every man a liar. This is not only true of the unbeliever, but also of the believer. Both believers and unbelievers must acknowledge that everything God does is righteous, is valid. It is that which is good and right for everyone. He had to even tell Job this. Job understood this when his troubles first came upon him. But later, when he began his dialogue with his friends, then he started to be wayward, and God had to confront him. When he first had the afflictions... He said, in Job 1.20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. He didn't sin or blame God initially when all of his troubles came on him. When things were stripped away from him, his children, his house, his servants, everything was taken away. And even later, his health was taken away. And even then, he didn't even have the support of his own wife. And it, later he says, my breath is offensive even to my wife. Why? Because he doesn't have much food to eat. She doesn't want to be around him either. This is what Job did. Initially, he was faithful. But later, when he started to, to contemplate and to speculate about his circumstances, along with his friends, he started to go in the wrong direction. And God confronts him. God says in chapter 40, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. He's saying to Job, 
Are you going to be a fault finder and contend with me, the Almighty God? Give me an answer. You, you, you are reproving or rebuking God. You're confronting God, but you give me an answer. And let's see who's right and who's wrong. As well, verse 6. Verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, not out of, out of a soft, gentle voice, but out of a storm, and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. He's mocking Job. Job, I'm mocking you. I will ask you questions and you instruct me. You teach me if you're so great. Verse 8, will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Absolutely not. We don't have strength like God. We don't have righteousness like God. So why would we brazenly accuse God? Those who live in faith, true believers, acting in faith, will say, God is righteous, God is good, everything he does is just and right, I'm in the fault, or somebody else is in the fault. Now, we have to acknowledge that we are in the fault. It's easy to have these truths be applied to somebody else. It's easy to have these truths applied to somebody else. We can see somebody else in affliction, somebody else in want, somebody else in doubt. And we can say, God is righteous, because it's not happening to us. But notice, in the rest of verse 75, he puts himself also in that category. He says, and, in, and that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. You, God, in faithfulness, you are a faithful God, and you, God, have afflicted me. You, God, have tormented me. You, God, have brought these hardships on me. He acknowledges the source of them. Now, when he does, we have to keep in mind that God is a righteous Father. He's a righteous Father, both. The righteousness is in verse 75. The righteousness is in verse 75. And by implication, in verse 73, God is a Father. If God forms and fashions, if He is the source of His life, then He is a Father. Just like it says in Luke 3, 38, that Adam was called a son of God, the son of God. In the sense that He was created that way, God created him, He was His Father. So in this sense, if we consider God to be a righteous Father, then we should not be troubled. And we should know that as the Almighty righteous father that he's got all the power so he does according to his will so don't be alarmed by it if he's righteous we know he's doing everything that's good and true and righteous and if he's a father he has our best interests in mind he loves us he's been kind to us because he knows that we need these afflictions to change us and to make us more like Christ that's why he says in faithfulness you have afflicted me in faithfulness. Things are not out of control. God's not unloving. He's not unkind. He's not lost uh, control of the world. Nothing like that has happened. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. This is when we have to come to this realization that God will do these things even to us. When he afflicted Job, it was not because of his sin, but to teach him patience, self-control, perseverance, endurance, 
This is why he did it to Job. And to show the world and the devil that Job loves God for who he is. He does not love God because of the things God gives him. Not because of the things God gives him. That was what Satan accused Job of and God of by implication. God, you just have a puppet here. He just loves you because you just put a hedge around everything he has. You've prospered everything he has. He owns a lot of property and wealth. This is what you've done to him, and he just loves you for that reason. No, we ought to love God and have in our mind that God is in his faithfulness bringing hardships upon us. This is the way the believer looks at his life. But we are not alone. Just as he said in 75 that God's faithfulness does this, notice in verses 76 and 77, 76 and 77, Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Both God's loving kindness and compassion or mercy are ours. They're ours in abundance. God gives us his loving kindness to comfort us, to guide us, and to show us. His comfort and his loving kindness are manifested according to his word to your servant. We are reminded, according to the word of God, of all the promises of God. We are reminded, according to the word of God, what the Bible says about God's presence with us. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. We are reminded by this word that there is a life to come that is better than this life. And, this, and the life to come is eternal. The life we live now is only 70 or 80 years if God blesses us that much. It's only that long. That's nothing compared to eternity. So the loving kindness of God is there and it's there in abundance for us to know and for us to experience. And this is that loving kindness that comforts us. It comforts us no matter what happens to us. This is why, after explaining so many afflictions in Romans 8, 26 to 39, he says, Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Knowing that truth by faith in Christ, that should comfort us. It should help us to live day by day. And his mercy or compassion, verse 77. He also wants more of God's mercy and compassion. He knows of his faithfulness. He knows of his love or kindness. And he now says that his compassion, he wants more of his compassion or mercy to come to him. He knows that it was the mercy of God that saved him from sin. God was merciful to the sinner. This is what the tax collector says in Luke 18, 9 to 14. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. He knows that that's what gave him life. But that's also what maintains our spiritual life. Day by day, we need the compassion or the mercy of God to live. He's not talking merely about his physical life. He's talking about his spiritual life. It is the spiritual life that we really need. We don't just need to live physically. If we just live physically, we're hardly different from the animals. Domestic animals or the brood animals. We're hardly different from them. They eat, we eat. 
right? They sleep, we sleep. So what's the difference between them and us? The life that he's wanting here by the mercy of God is not merely physical. He wants to live spiritually. He wants eternal life to be in him and to be more manifested in his life. He wants it dominating his life. He doesn't want to live for the world anymore. He wants life. He doesn't want deathly and fatal things. He wants nothing to do with that. He doesn't want things that are going to decay and become a corpse or a carcass. He doesn't want maggots. He doesn't want to live that way. The things of the world are those very things. They are full of maggots. We don't see the maggots, but one day they will be full of maggots. That's the way the things of the world are. He knows life comes from God. Now, is this a good prayer? Certainly it is. Because he says in 77, For your law is my delight. He's asking and pleading with God for more loving kindness and more compassion. For your law is my delight. Are these wrong things to pray? Are these evil things to pray? Are these just for certain zealous people? Perhaps even for fanatics, religious fanatics are supposed to do that? No. We're all supposed to do that. Because we all are to consider the law of God our delight. The law of God. He can pray this way and ask for more love and compassion from God, not because he wants to spend them on his pleasures, not because he wants God to answer prayer so that he can gratify the flesh. It's not for those reasons. Because he's saying, your law is my delight. In other words, because I'm asking for good things... Please, Lord, I beg you, Lord, answer my prayers. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Or Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So what, the, what is the point? I listen to your law. I read your law. I want to know what it says. And I will never ever presume to pray anything that contradicts what's in the Bible. So please, Lord, answer my prayer. Because it conforms to the Bible. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you, want to spend, because you have evil motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Ask with right motives, and God will grant what we need. And if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, then all these things shall be added to us. So ask for the things that are proper, according to the Word of God. 77 also notes where his focus is. Your law is my delight. I ask with the right motives, and I also have the right Means I also know that in my life, I delight in your law. I don't delight in the things of the world. I delight in your law. Verse 72. Your, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law is better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 127. Psalm 119, 120. 27. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. He loves the commandments of God. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 
chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. He says, spiritually speaking, I found your words and I ate them. I consumed them. I wanted to eat and eat and eat and eat your words because they were a joy and the delight of my heart. And this happens because I have been called by your name. I am a true believer. I've been redeemed. And this is my action. I show my love for you. I don't love the things of the world. I love your law. Job. Job 23. Job 23, 12. He says himself. Speaking of himself. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He wants the Word of God more than His food. And we all know, it's self-evident we, that we have food that's necessary for our nourishment. We need it all. Of course we do. But He's saying, I regard the words of God more necessary than my food. He also, Jeremiah, Job, David, they delight in the Word of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3.16... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly. Instead of being filled with other riches, be filled with the riches of Christ by the word of Christ. This is what believers do. Unbelievers do not understand this. Unbelievers and wicked people do not understand this. No matter how moral they may seem on the outside, they don't get it. They don't want the Word of God above all else. They don't desire it. They don't delight in it. They don't read it. They don't study it. They don't consult it. They don't find other places or a church that will teach it faithfully. They won't do those things. They don't care. They think it's the Word of men. They think that you can use a little bit of religion for your, uh, your advantage and, and exploit it in this life, make connections, make friendships so that in, in the churches you can help your own business or whatever. This is what people do. But they don't come to hear the Word of God, to be reminded of the truths of the Word of God because they delight in other things. But true believers delight in the Bible. They read it, they study it, they memorize it, they talk about it, they want to know. Verse 78. Now, we will see a contrast. He has described the true believer, but look at the unbeliever in verse 78. The unbeliever deserves the justice of God. We have been delivered from the wrath of God or the justice of God, but the unbeliever deserves it because they show their hatred of God against the people of God. Verse 78. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. But I shall meditate on your precepts. When we begin to live a godly life, then there will be people who resist it. And when these people resist it, they will accuse the believers... They will accuse the messengers of God. They will accuse anybody who's living faithfully for Christ of doing wrong. 
of being evil, of, of being uh, people who are uh, self-interested, who don't really care, who don't really love, who don't really show grace. They will say these things on and on and on. And these people, David says, are arrogant people. They're not humble people because they will not submit themselves to God. They are actually arrogant, proud people. And he wishes for them to be ashamed. May the arrogant be ashamed. The shame that we will speak of in verse 80, he wants to happen to them. Similar to 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Or in the, uh, Galatians chapter 5, 5, 12. I wish that those who were troubling you would even mutilate themselves. I wish that those who are troubling you, the Galatians, false teachers mingling among them and subverting the true gospel, I wish that those false teachers would even mutilate themselves. That is, mutilate their own private parts because they were teaching circumcision. I wish that that would happen to them so they would be ashamed. Why? Why do the arrogant deserve to be ashamed? For they subvert me with the lie. I am doing the best I can to live my Christian life. I'm speaking the truth. I'm living righteously. I'm trying to guide others. I'm trying to teach the Bible. I'm doing these things. I'm, and as king of the land, he's attempting to execute righteousness in the courts and appoint righteous officials and to distribute righteousness and righteous priests and Levites throughout the country. We know that David was doing this from 1 Chronicles chapters 28 and 29. He was doing this. He was trying to inculcate that into the people, the leadership and the common people. He was doing all those kinds of things. He was doing righteousness, but these people, these arrogant people, are trying to subvert that. They're trying to undermine that. And they undermine that with lies. Lies. They don't tell the truth. They'll tell half-truths. They'll tell partial truths. They will deceive they, they will be deceitful. They will put a color on something. They will make you think one thing when actually it's something else. They will be false people and they will do this with slander and with malice. Sometimes they will do it in your presence, but sometimes they will do it outside of your presence. And this is what happens to David. They are trying to subvert the work of David with a lie. We know many examples of this in David's life. Just read the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and even the first part of 1st Kings. Samuel and Kings will, will read there how David had many enemies. Some of them are named like King Saul. King Saul tried to subvert David with a lie. We know that there was also Absalom, his own son, David's son Absalom, subverting David with lies. We know that there was also uh, Shemiah. Shemiah was subverting David with lies, saying things that were not true about him. These people were everywhere. He had to face them all the time. They undermined the truth with lies. And this is what will happen to us. This will happen to us. Jesus said, He said so in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. He said, Blessed are you, 
when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The righteous prophets of the past were persecuted in that way. They lied about Jeremiah. They lied about Ezekiel. They lied about all kinds of prophets. They lied, lied, lied to subvert the truth. This will happen to us. If we remain faithful, be ready. But what should we do when that happens? Well, the main thing is to meditate on God's precepts. Verse 78, But I shall meditate on your precepts. Meditate on the precepts of God. That will keep us controlled. Because we can become out of control. We might become angry and bitter. We might become self-serving. We might seek retaliation. If they say something wrong about us, we might be tempted to go and speak in another corner to our friends and say something wrong about them, something untrue about them, to make up something to make them look bad, worse than they are. They're bad enough, but we might say something to make them look even worse. We should not do that. He says, I shall meditate on your precepts. I'm going to focus on what your word says to control my thoughts, to control my anxieties, to control my anger. I'm going to meditate on your precepts. I'm not going to be out of control. I will meditate on your precepts. I want to know what you think of the situation. I want to do what you want me to do in the situation. Daniel the prophet dealt with that. He had officials in the court of the kingdom of Persia, Medea and Persia, He had officials who were jealous of him and who were maliciously attacking him. They slandered him to others, to themselves, and even to the king. In a a certain way, they set him up for failure. But when Daniel the prophet knew that there was a decree that nobody should worship any god except the king, he knew that, and Daniel 6.10 says, when he knew that, what did he do? He went to pray. And he did as usual three times a day facing Jerusalem. He prayed. He was meditating on God and his precepts. He prayed. The same thing happened to Paul and Silas. In the city of Philippi, there was a riot that occurred. And the people falsely accused Paul and Silas. Falsely accused them. And they beat them up. And they got them thrown into prison and got the officials to be against them, they were in prison. But what did they do? But it came about at midnight that they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They prayed and sang hymns of praise. Well, for them to pray and sing hymns of praise, they are meditating on God and His Word thereby. That's what we ought to do, to think what God thinks whenever we have persecution. And then... Verse 80. Verse 80. Since we've covered verses uh, 74 and 79 together. Verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be ashamed. May my heart be blameless in your statutes. He desires not to be a hypocrite. He does not want 
to be a showman. He does not want to be somebody who's only concerned about external religions, a religion and external things. He's not trying to pretend at all. He wants to be the opposite. He does not want to be a pretender. He does not want to be somebody who does wrong. In the, on the inside, he doesn't believe, but on the outside, he shows other people that he is a great believer, supposedly. He doesn't want that. He knows that the human heart is very wicked and it's very easy for us to desire to please men but not really believe it. He doesn't want to be that way. He wants to be sincere. He wants to be somebody whose inside is genuine, it's true, it's honest, it's transparent, a man of integrity. This is the kind of person he wants to be. So that what he is on the inside manifests itself on the outside. Hypocrites don't want this. Hypocrites love the praise of men. They love the, 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 root, uh, the rituals of religion. They love to show up and they love to do certain rituals in the service, but they don't really believe it. And they think that even though they don't really believe it, just because they do the external things, that that's enough and God will be happy enough. No. David knows that God desires a blameless heart. He desires to be blameless in the things of God. He wants to be a genuine and sincere man of God. And he knows that if he's not that, he will be ashamed in the future. He will be ashamed when the Lord Jesus returns. There will be shame and dishonor when Christ returns, if he is not this way. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Remain or obey God as little children, so that when he appears, when Christ appears, we can have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame. Not shrink away. There will be no shame, but only confidence when the Lord returns. And how can we know? If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. If we do not practice righteousness, we are not born of Him. There were pretenders. There were pretenders in the time... Of Christ, Christ announced this parable. He said, Matthew 24, 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that sl evil slave says in his heart, notice that, if he says in his heart and then shows it by his actions, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that house will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. 
The evil slave says in his heart, I've got plenty of time. I don't need to repent now. And whatever is in my heart, you know, it doesn't matter. He pretends that God doesn't know what's in his heart. And that all that he wants to do is on the outside. And that is, he wants to beat his fellow slaves. He can't control his anger. He's very angry like Cain against Abel. He eats and drinks with drunkards. He does whatever his flesh wants. And then Christ will surprise him when he returns. And Christ, the Master, will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. We know he is speaking of the day of judgment and being thrown into the lake of fire. This is what happens to hypocrites whose heart does not desire to be blameless in the things of God. If we're not blameless now, we will be blameworthy later. If we don't take care of our shame now and repent of sin now, we will be ashamed later. This is the man of God praying and desiring these things. Let's be the same way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.